I think we can all agree that some hosts are better than others. But then there is the rare host, the rare person, really, who's magnetic. You want to listen or maybe to watch, but you don't really know why. You're caught. Nikki Boyer is Exhibit A. You may know her name because she created the wondery hit Dying for Sex in 2021. Dying for Sex chronicled the way Nikki's best friend Molly contended with her terminal breast cancer by having as many sexual adventures as possible before dying. Millions of people listened, and it won an award for Podcast of the Year. Or maybe you know Nikki because before she became an avid podcaster, she was a TV personality who appeared on almost every major TV talk show. She won three Emmy Awards, and she was famously photobombed at the Grammys by Beyonce. But none of that explains the magnetism. That comes from something else, something we can all do. Something we can all bring to our podcast, in fact. It's the singular focus she offers the person standing in front of her. Nikki makes you feel not just like the only person in the room, but like the person she'd rather spend time with than anyone else. It's presence. And it stems from a deep curiosity and fearlessness. Frankly, Nikki wants all the answers. How does that feel? And is that what you wanted? And are you disappointed? I really like kind of getting the shovel and and digging a little. And it doesn't make everybody comfortable. And that's okay. Some people are like, whoa, this is too much. But here's the thing. Nikki Boyer had to learn how to let go, how to give up dreams of being the center of attention and swap them for dreams of giving attention. And she had to learn how to be honest and blunt herself, even when it would have been easier not to. Storytellers, This episode includes a discussion of suicide. It talks about death with dignity and the dying process. Please listen with care. This is Sound Judgment, where we investigate just what it takes to become a beloved audio storyteller by pulling apart one episode at a time together. I'm Elaine Appleton-Grant. If you've been listening to Sound Judgment for a little while, you know I'm on a quest to learn the universal skills and qualities of today's best storytellers. I've learned a ton from this project and from my 20 years as a journalist in public radio and podcasting. If you ever think, gosh, I wish I had a coach to help me with my podcast strategy, storytelling chops, or on-air skills, or just to bounce ideas off of, but you don't want to make a big commitment... I'm now offering one-time coaching sessions. My last client said it was exactly what she needed. It's easy to sign up for just one coaching session at podcastallies.com. Nikki Boyer, welcome to Sound Judgment. I really can't tell you how thrilled I am to have you here. Oh my gosh, the feeling is so mutual. So thank you for having me. Nikki, I watched a news clip of you talking about your new show, Near Death, on a local news station. Right. You said, I love having uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> sort of the same way I might say, I love talking about, I don't know, the book that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. That seems to sum up at least the last three or four years of your life. And I, I thought it was an interesting place to start. Is this desire, this love of uncomfortable conversations, a core piece of who you are? 
Oh, this is like therapy. I think so, Elaine. I do because now that I, when I'm looking back at sort of how I was wired and the kind of kid that I was, I didn't like the phony, phony, fake, fake. I didn't like that. I really liked the real stuff. I liked going in and asking the uncomfortable questions. And sometimes that was too much for people. So I think in my youth, it didn't serve me. But as I've gotten older, people tend to like that and gravitate towards that. So it is kind of a the core of who I am. It's definitely become the core of my career in the last three to four years. And it's the most creative I've ever felt, the happiest I've ever felt. So I think it's working. <laughs> we'll see. That's so interesting. I was going to save this question for the very end, but I'm going to ask it now. You just started recently your new production company, Dying for Media. And it appears to be that it's all about uncomfortable topics, right. sex, death. <laughs> yeah. Near Death is the first podcast out of it, but you've got a whole slate planned. And I found it fascinating that you say you're designing it as an audio-first company. You're a video person. I so am. why did you choose <laughs> to start an audio-first company? <laughs> That's such a great question. I think it was a happy accident. I think I came to LA and I spent so much time on camera, right? Using my face, my body, my persona, all of that to, you know, do artistic work, also sell products, also get notoriety and you know, all that shit you do. And uh, there was just... I got my start in radio. I took radio classes in college. I worked as an intern at a radio station. I worked back in radio when you would cut the tape, Elaine, like cut it, physically cut the tape and put it together. Like that's that's what really? I was doing. So I really you love that. You were 12, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love you. Yes, I was, I was 12. Exactly. So it's funny that I landed back in audio, but I think ultimately my goal and my plan is to always take everything to film into television. But something that I've learned along the way with audio is that there is something so beautifully intimate and vulnerable about listening to something with just your ears. It's just so personal. So I love it. I love doing audio first. I think people feel a little safer, a little more open to share when they know there's not lights and cameras around. And then they kind of gain their confidence and then they're ready to maybe share in a little more of a, a visual platform. But it sounds like you're not ruling out taking some of this material to video or film. I would love to. At the end of the day, creating a television show that moves and changes people, that is the ultimate goal. But like I always say with Dying for Sex, if you really want the real story, then go to the audio because it's actually me and Molly. TV shows change and they morph and they grow and they become something in and of themselves, but I do think there's something so sacred and truthful about the audio. If it's docu-series, I think you get a real sort of gritty vibe of who the people are just, just from their voices. Well, gritty is a good word for dying for sex. And dying for sex shared your best friend Molly's sex life in a way that is very raw, and that was a huge hit. So Molly, for those who have not listened yet, Molly is grappling with breast cancer She's also dealing with trauma from her past. And you explore big themes that affect us all, like healing, forgiveness, and what we do with the time we have left. So I want to play a clip from season one, episode three. And I just want to preface this by saying this is one of the very tamest of Molly's sex stories. I think we watched a movie or something. I think we did something like very mundane. Okay. And we talked, and we got along really well. And um, was he just eyeing your feet the whole time? No, see, that's no. the thing. He wasn't. He wasn't. 
No, we actually got along. We had like some intellectual conversation, and then, and then the shoes came off. <laughs> Literally, right? Literally, yeah. So you know, so his thing was he liked to be walked on, and he also liked to suck toes and oh. sort of like watch me as he was worshiping my feet. He liked the idea of like looking up at a beautiful woman and worshiping her feet at the same time. So. I kind of learned very quickly how to deal with this foot fetish. Millions of people downloaded Dying for Sex. Yeah. What kind of reaction did you get from people who were like, wow, I didn't know I needed to hear something so raw? What kind of reaction? The reaction was unbelievable and very healing. Because by that time, spoiler alert, Molly had already gone. She had passed away. So in a way, those comments kind of kept her alive in me. And hearing people say things like, oh, my God, I fell in love with her. And, oh, my God, she said this today. And it made me think about to know that she was still sort of alive in people's lives. That felt really, really beautiful to me. I got loving messages, people saying anything from, I haven't gotten my first breast exam and I'm going tomorrow because of this podcast. Or I haven't spoken to my mother in 10 years and watching Molly sort of figure out her relationship with her mom, this truck driver, he's like, I pulled over and I called my mom. I haven't talked to her in 10 years. And I talked to her today like no time had gone by. And then other messages like, this has changed my life, my perspective on my relationship. I'm not as happy as I thought I was, or I need more sex, or I may not be searching for sex, but I'm searching for something and Molly's given me the courage. And so I just feel like the reactions were really um, very surprising and very loving. And it does tell us something about something about the need to hear these conversations. I bet a lot of people never hear in their normal lives any deep conversations at all. Right. Because well, we kind of coast through life, you know. How's the weather? How are the kids? Where'd you go on vacation? Cool, cool. See you next Friday, right? Yeah. How often do you walk into the room and someone says, you know, are you really fulfilled with your relationship. And then the wheels start turning. And then, you know, two days later, like, so I wanted to tell you something that I was thinking about. So, and not that we need to like put people's feet to the fire to be like, are you happy? Is your relationship good? But like asking the deeper questions of what did that mean to you? And how does that feel? And is that what you wanted? And are you disappointed? I really like kind of getting the shovel and, and digging a little. And it doesn't make everybody comfortable. And that's okay. Some people are like, whoa, this is too much. Well, I got to say, when I when I heard the first episode what did you think? Dying for Sex, well, I was in the car with my husband listening to the first episode of Dying for Sex, which is very <laughs> racy. And I was a little embarrassed, you know? <laughs> right. And he was listening very intently and having like no <laughs> expression on his face <laughs> at all. Right. Now, I, I am curious, like, why were you, like, what was embarrassing about it for you? Oh, my I gosh. I mean, it's pretty kinky. Yeah, well, it is. But you're also reminding me of another guest that I had last season, Dana yeah. Black. Okay. Who has a great podcast you would like. It's called I Swear on My Mother's Grave. And she's a memoirist and also an actor like you. Mm -hmm. And she did the same thing. She's like, oh, but Elaine, I need to ask you questions. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> right. So we're going to move on from that one just because I have a lot of questions to ask. We can talk about it later. You've said that you were motivated to start near death which features Reverend Peggy, a chaplain who was with your friend Molly in her last days. 
because of the experience of going through Molly's death with Peggy. Speak to what it's like to have a person as your animating force. So in the case of dying for sex, Molly. Yeah. You know, it's funny when she was dying, um, she said to me, I hope that somehow this project that we're working on from her deathbed somehow makes your life and your purpose very clear and so much better. I think she knew before she died that she was kind of giving me this gift and this purpose because she'd watch me flail. I was a host. I was an actress. I was a voiceover. I was the theater. I did. I was like, somebody, somebody pay attention to me. Right. A little desperate, you know. And as I got older, I think I tried to shed some of that, but it was still in me. And then when I got really clear about what kind of stories I wanted to tell, I quit the business and I was done. And then Molly got sick and we started working on this project together and I've I haven't stopped. She is my North Star. I ask her for help. I meditate and give her questions and try to feel what she would say. Ugh, I get emotional just thinking about it. And I feel like she's, she gets to work through me. And so it feels really great to have a person, like a human that you deeply loved to be sort of your driving force. And I feel like she will be until I'm gone because there's so much integrity and so much clarity in it. And I'm not going, just like me, like me. I'm going, I have a story to tell and I have this person's story to tell and I can't wait to share it with you. So it feels better than, you know, waiting for the spotlight to land on me. Right. I have this person's story to tell. And so that's a gift to that person, but also to the listeners who it's meant for. You chose the episode Death Party in Near Death as the one that you wanted to pull apart with me. So Death Party largely focuses on the experience that Reverend Peggy had helping this woman, Sheila, die. And we're going to get to Sheila's very powerful story soon. But first, you and Peggy made an intentional choice. You start the episode by greeting each other and you're chatting and you don't formally introduce the show or yourselves for a full five minutes. I want to play some tape for you of the beginning of the episode. You start almost immediately by telling Peggy your story about being trained as a suicide hotline counselor. And you say you loved it, but you were terrible at it. It's a crisis line. So when people would call, you'd have a certain amount of time where you'd have to find out whether or not they were really in need and they were high risk. Yeah, And so if they were just... I, having suicidal ideation mm-hmm. or sort of just having a really, really hard day and contemplating things, they didn't fall in that crisis. Like crisis means you're going to kill yourself today. Right. So I would be on these calls with people for 20, 30, 35 minutes. And my supervisor, who I loved, by the way, um, she told me over and over again that I spent way too much time on the calls. I remember there was this one gentleman who called me from a payphone oh. at a, oh God, every time I think about him, I cry. He called me from a payphone at a gas station. Uh-huh. And he said, I am homeless and I don't have anywhere to go and I don't want to live anymore. And right now I'm currently living in the, the ditch that I've dug out between the building and the bathroom area and I'm sleeping there at night and I don't have anywhere to go and I don't have anyone to call and I don't know what to do. 
And I just thought, oh my God. And I said, how likely are you to do this tonight? And he said, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah. So that's not a high risk caller. So I could not gonna, I spent the next 30 minutes talking to him, but what I learned is that he had had a really good life and he had family and things took a downward spiral and he didn't know what to do and he didn't know where to go. And I stayed on the phone with him forever. Like I just couldn't, picturing him, (laughs) <laughs> getting off the phone with me and like going to his little like Ugh. dugout ditch where he was going to stay that night yeah. just broke my heart. Yeah. So yeah. I stayed on the phone oh. and I got in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting story in and of itself, but it has almost nothing to do with the bulk of the episode about Sheila and mm-hmm. about a death with dignity. And it's a choice to say, you know, essentially we're starting this show as a chat show. And I'm wondering, like, if you can tell me the story of how you decided, hey, we should do a straight interview show and we should chat with each other like this. Because it's very different than Dying for Sex, which is a very formally constructed, highly sound designed, narrated interview show. Well, I think the... The one thing we wanted to do, first and foremost, was make this a safe place where people felt like they could come to listen to stories and not just be moved and cry and think about death, but where we could also talk about like uncomfortable things. And the reason that Peggy and I decided for that episode to talk about the Suicide Prevention Center is that, you know, for a long time, the Death with Dignity Act was called, you know, it was like assisted suicide. And so we wanted to ease people into the idea of taking your own life and having those conversations is not very often that people say, let's talk about suicide. So that was our sort of very just chatty way of saying, let's ease into the idea of taking your own life. What does that mean? How do I connect with that? I connect with it because I worked there. I've had a few family members die by suicide. There was a connection. We always try to be very mindful of how we weave it together. I don't know. I took some risks and you know, we're still in a way kind of still figuring it out. I'm not criticizing it. I'm really asking like a question because you've got two very different shows back to back. And in fact, Near Death was inspired by Dying for Sex and in a couple of very significant ways, you know, Molly and Peggy. And yet you've chosen entirely different formats for them. And it's one of the first choices that people need to make, right? When they say, I'm going to do a podcast. Well, what's it going to look like and feel like? What kind of container are you putting that in? I don't think we knew when we started. I just knew I didn't want the heaviest of lift because it's a weekly show and Dying for Sex is a docu-series, right? It's a limited. And sustaining that, I knew that I wanted it to be bookended. I wanted everybody to understand that we were just two gals hanging out talking about stuff. And then there's these really profound moments. And then we have a martini at the end. And more than anything, I wanted people to really capture the feeling of what it is like to have a chaplain as a friend. And also bringing these amazing stories about death to hopefully make your life a little better and maybe shift your perspective a little bit about gratitude, illness. All the stories that we tell, we... We're not heavy handing them to you like, this is how you should feel. We're just sharing the death stories. And I think it's easy to stereotype people when you have an idea of who they are, what they mean to your life. And then you stop and go, oh, everyone's dying. None of us are getting out of here alive. 
But when you hear someone's death story, I think it really humanizes them. And you go, oh, he wasn't just a this. He was also a this and a this and a dad. I am very interested in the stories that we elicit as interviewers and the moments that we as editors and producers decide to keep in and leave out. And I was taken by this little moment. It's about 20 minutes in. So it's about Sheila. She's a very powerful woman. She's middle-aged. She's an executive. Every hair in place. She's got it all together. And she seems sort of formidable. But she gets ALS. And it's a degenerative terminal disease. And eventually, you don't have control over your muscles. You can't move easily. You can't speak easily, et cetera. It's a terrible disease. And um, so Sheila makes a very surprising decision, and it's kind of a small moment, and I'd like you to take a listen to this. She would have moments where she's like, oh, my God, this is real. What do I got to do? What do I got to do? And she, in her, in her faith tradition, she grew up in, you know, a non-practicing home, right? And just cultural Jews, and she said, I never got by mitzvah. Oh. And I'm, huh. and I said, well, why don't you do it now? And she's like, do you think? Oh, and I'm God. like, do it now if you want it. You know, I said, I, I can, I know some rabbis. <laughs> I got some, I got some peeps <laughs> I on got my connections, phone. Exactly. I got like five rabbis numbers in my <laughs> phone. I swear I do. And she's like, I, I want to do it. And she goes, oh, no, do I have to learn Hebrew? And I'm like, you're going to get a pass. I promise you, because that would take forever, right? She wanted to get it done. Yeah. Um, so, so she got she got bat mitzvah. She did. Oh, she got yeah, bat mitzvah. For people who might not know, bat mitzvahs usually happen at the age of 13. What was interesting about this, and I wondered whether you've talked about, about this with Peggy, is um, I wondered about the role of rituals when people are dying. You know, that one of your stated goals, I think, with near death is to make people more comfortable talking about death, make it less scary, normalize it. And there's that sense of urgency. I don't have much time left. What am I going to do with it? I better do the things that I kind of always meant to do or maybe didn't even realize I should have done. And I wondered like, if this is a common thing that people, when they know they're going to die, add ritual to their lives, do rituals that, you know, normally are reserved for children, but are meaningful. I, I don't know. I think I looked at it as one was, what are all the things that maybe I wished I would have, should have, could have done and can I do them now? Like, right? Like, it's never too late. And here I have a chaplain who's, you know, has access. Why not? Like, why not do it? I also think there was a fear. Sheila had mentioned that she had a fear. Like, is what she's doing since she chose to um, die with the Death with Dignity Act? Is she okay? Is she right with God? Is she right religiously? Is she going to go to hell? I think she had those questions for Peggy. So maybe that bat mitzvah was one more like... <laughs> nod to like, hey, God, I'm doing good here. <laughs> I have the certificate. Let me exactly. in. Uh -huh. I can't even imagine the thoughts and questions that go on in someone's head. But I imagine I probably would too go, bring me the crystals. 
I'm not into Jesus really, but the, bring the crucifixes. Where's the little yarmulke? I will do anything I need to do just to feel good. <laughs> Exactly. That's where my mind went. It's like, what would you do? Or would you, you know, like Molly wrote her memoir in the last two months of her life. And I, I thought in one episode, you said she, she tended to do everything at the last minute, which was kind of funny, but true too. Peggy's married a lot of people on their deathbeds. A lot of people say, I want to die knowing I was married to you and what made them wait that long. And now they're dying. And I think we wait sometimes to give ourselves permission to do the things that you know, maybe scare us a little. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe this will help some people not wait. So I want to go back to Sheila's story. And here's a clip from about 30 minutes in. And Sheila has taken a turn for the worse. She came in one day, I remember, I'll never forget, she came in one day, and she always had to see me. She's like, son, Peggy in here. (laughs) And I came in, and she was as coiffed as she could be, but she was not the same coif. So her hair wasn't really as fantastic. Like, it was fantastic. It just wasn't styled, just so. And um, she had a big schmutz on her shirt, just so not Sheila. It's not Sheila. I've, I've only known her for yeah. a short time, but I'm like, that's not Sheila. Okay. She had a schmutz. So you know what's coming. Like, there's nothing heavy-handed. She doesn't say, oh, and she's really sick now. And so yeah. as a listener, it's such a good lead-in to, oh, now I see what's happening, right? And you're talking about someone who can't participate in the conversation because she has died. Right. And Peggy does a wonderful job of pulling Sheila into this conversation anyway of making her a character, which near death is all about people who are no longer with us. Do you or did you wrestle at all with how to make listeners feel like these people are still present and they're still real, whole, vivid human beings? In the very beginning, we knew that we had to handle these people with such love and care because we're sharing their stories. And Peggy has just such a beautiful way of honoring them. I think this is where her her experience of being a chaplain really comes in, where she really meets people where they are, understands how to honor them and say enough about them to where we get who they are, but don't compromise their anonymity. And also, I think we're both just bleeding hearts. Like, I mean, I all the time in my life, I go, oh, Sheila, or oh, Sheila. And I, this makes me think of Sheila. I've never met Sheila. I don't know Sheila, but I know her. Like, Sheila is in my heart. And I think after you listen, you're like, oh, it's Sheila. <laughs> Marilyn from the Angels episode. These people are in me now because I think Peggy does such a beautiful job at peeling the onion of these people. I think the thing about particularly that description of the change in Sheila's physical appearance. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that there's like a stain on her shirt, it's so visceral. It sounds like Peggy probably does this intuitively. She doesn't even think about how she's describing people, but it's not intuitive to everybody. And so storytellers listening to this episode, I kind of want you to take that away. Like, it's the visceral nature, it's the sensory details, it's the subtle changes that tell us so much and make somebody feel like you could reach out and touch them and they're in the room and, and they matter to you. 
I want to bring you now to close to the end of the episode. So at this point, Sheila has gotten very ill and she tells Peggy that she is ready to die. And she was like, I'm really ready. And I, and I love you. And I said, I love you. I said, I really love you. And I remember I kind of patted her hair, you know, and I, I was like, I'll never forget you. She pulled me in for a kind of a sloppy smooch. And, uh, and then she said, pray me home, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it'd be my honor. It'd be my privilege to pray you home, Sheila. And she said, no, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. Like, I laughed so hard. And I was like, no, Jesus, <laughs> Sheila. No, Jesus. This really felt like the emotional heart or the, the climax of the conversation with Reverend Peggy because of the way it tied Sheila's story together. You know, there was a climax and a conclusion. And because of the depth of your, your emotion, you're laughing, you're crying. Tell me about this moment. What stands out the most is what stood out with Molly is that here is this woman who is making a decision and created this beautiful relationship with a chaplain. Even though she's Jewish, she has a Christian chaplain guiding her in her death journey. To me, it's how beautiful is Sheila and how beautiful is Peggy? And it doesn't have anything to do with religion. It has everything to do with connection and love. And then the no Jesus is obviously hilarious. Like she's you know, telling a woman who basically has, you know, her entire education is based on Jesus Christ. And she's like, no Jesus. And, and that's what I love about Peggy, and that's one thing about this show that I love, is that there's no case that she won't take. There's no patient that she won't see. And it's never about religion. But um, going back to this moment, that was their goodbye as well. Like Sheila went on to finish her life out. And I can't imagine being Peggy, being so engaged and so a part of someone's death journey. And then you just say, you just say goodbye. You've done your part for them and you move to the next person that needs your heart, so. And yet, you did the same thing. <laughs> oh, God, Elaine. <laughs> Great, you're making me cry now. Oh, yeah. True. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. How has producing and hosting near death changed you in a way that you didn't expect? I've never gotten my hands this dirty. I've never been this invested. And um, honestly, I don't think I've ever worked as many hours or as hard on something as I have this. Dying for Sex, I had an amazing executive producer, Stephanie Jens. I had Laura Donna Palavota. I had Janine Cornelo writing. I had Wondery on my... I had this like powerhouse of people. And then when you start your own company, you're like, it's me and my three friends, right? We're going to do everybody's job. And it gave me an appreciation for your sales, your marketing, your editor, your sound designer, your associate producers, your people that send the emails for the Zoom, like the people that created what you and I are doing today. It takes a village. And when you start to do those jobs, you start to really have a deep respect and understanding for what other people do. So I have a whole new... Um, appreciation for the team and what the team does. So that's what I've gained. Yeah, for sure. 
I do not normally talk about business, but because Dying for Sex was a wondery show with, as you said, the enormous resources of that network behind it, (laughs) and then you started Dying for Media, and now it's, you know, a very entrepreneurial small venture with a ton of work, you brought up advertising and marketing. There's a lot of talk about brand safety in podcasting. So what's less brand safe, sex or death? That's so funny because when I brought Dying for Sex to Wondery, they were like, well, what about the title? Because brands don't really like death and brands don't really like sex. And I was like, tough shit. (laughs) Too bad. That's the title of the show. And at the time, the CEO of the company, Hernan Lopez, who's a dear friend of mine, he was willing to take the risk. And it was not an easy sell at first. People were like, oh, death and sex? Ugh. But I think things have changed in the last four to five years, and I think now people are much more open about sex and people are talking more about death. It's still a little bit of a sell. Having said that, I spent my entire career doing things that were brand friendly, right? I was the pop culture girl. I was on the red carpet. I was talking about what watch to get your dad on Father's Day. I was so brand safe. So after I hit 40, I was like, F it. I don't care if a brand... Like, the brands will find you when you make your mark. If you keep doing things that are quote unquote brand safe and and you really want success that feels good in your body, I don't know if you can have both of them at the same time because you almost have to prove it a little bit in order for the brands to go, oh, this is clicking. Let me go ahead and do an ad on a show about sex. And so I watched that happen kind of in real time as the numbers went up on Dying for Sex of people going, oh, people that you know, listen to this, do buy meal plan kits and do need mental health help and do like to, you know, go on vacation. So I think after doing this for so long, I gave less Fs about the money part, not because I was rich, but because I just, I couldn't be guided by like, what's the easy buck anymore. And I think it's, oh, it's at the heart of so many of the questions that we have when we start out to do something public. Right? I know. That's like, oh, I'm going to put my voice out there. I'm going to put my story out there. It's so scary. And so even if you're not selling advertising, there's still those questions about what's safe and what's not safe. A hundred percent. Yeah, what you're okay with your face and name and voice mainly being a part of. Who's your dream guest for sound judgment? The next person who's sitting where you're sitting right now. Oh, gosh, this is good. My goal for you. It's because she's got her own show on Lemonada, and I've been listening, and I love her. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That's my goal. Yes. She's been on my list. I think she's got a lot to say about business, about storytelling, about women, about the brand stuff. And she wanted to do a podcast. She was craving to do a podcast about advice from older women wiser than me. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for all your time and a fantastic conversation. This was lovely. I feel like we we laughed, we cried. I had therapy. I mean, I think I owe you some money for therapy session. Thank you for that. Oh, You're welcome. You're welcome. This one's on the house. At the end of every episode, I give you a few of the many takeaways from these conversations. Here are today's. One. Nikki loves having uncomfortable conversations. She'll ask almost anything and she'll share herself in order to create a welcoming, inviting environment. The result, healing conversations about the things that matter most. Two, 
It takes a lot of character to admit to the obstacles that stand in our way of doing our best, most honest work. For Nikki, the obstacle was her mindset. Before podcasting, she says she was an actress, a voiceover artist, and a TV personality who was always seeking the spotlight. Creating Dying for Sex changed all that. Now, she says, I have this person's story to tell, and I can't wait to share it with you. It's not about me. She's no longer chasing attention, but giving a gift. Three, one thing Nikki has learned from doing podcasts about death, a lot of people wait to give themselves permission to do the thing they really want to be doing. And in the end, they regret having put it off. If there's a project you've been putting off, don't wait any longer. Give yourself permission and jump in. That's all for today. For the last few episodes, we've been talking with creators who elicit deeply moving, honest stories from their subjects. But what do you do when those stories are deeply moving, but they might not be true? Like if she's lying about Celine Dion, she tells many, many Celine Dion lies. She was lying about Celine Dion. Why wouldn't she be lying about being sex trafficked as a child, right? Like, I think that's a logical way for people to feel. Next time on Sound Judgment, showrunner Karen Given and I dissect the making of Believable, the Coco Birthman story. It's a wild ride into the heart of an unusual scam. Sound Judgment is a production of Podcast Allies. If you've been looking for a listener-first, story-first production partner, get in touch. Our email's in the show notes and on our website, soundjudgmentpodcast.com. We'd love to work with you. Sound Judgment is produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant. Audrey Nelson is our production assistant. Sound design and editing by Kevin Klein. Podcast management by Tina Basir. And gratitude to the rafts of producers, editors, sound designers, and other team members behind every great story. Without you, the world would be a less beautiful place. See you next time, storytellers. Storytellers.